the Mosaic Church. Hi. I know some of you, but if I don't know you, my name is Brady. And I just like to make sure everyone knows that I'm an imperfect follower of Jesus. There's only one major qualification for everyone here is that we have to be imperfect. So if you're imperfect, you are welcome here. Uh, If you're perfect, I would love to meet you. That would be great. Um, Jesus is the only perfect one here. Um, it's, It's really good to be here. Uh, it's really good to be here. This morning, I was uh, hanging out with the Winter Garden campus, and I was talking about my dad because my dad is an avid hunter, and so I, I brought this 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 very dangerous bow and arrow. Uh, it is for 14 and up, so if you are not 14, divert your eyes. Um, but my dad... He grew up, did anybody grow up hunting? Anybody, can you, okay, we have people that are, I love that you're so close to Disney and you're willing to raise your hand that you're a hunter. Because I watched Bambi and the villain was the, the hunter. So just, I, I don't know if you, I don't know. Anyway, um, but my dad, avid hunter, grew up hunting with his dad, with his brothers, hunting all kind of, you know, varmints that run around Texas. I don't even know what all happens, javelina and all kind of stuff. Uh, but he picked up bow hunting later in life And I remember he practiced and practiced and practiced because he wanted to, actually, you know what he wanted to kill with a a bow and arrow? He wanted to kill a mountain lion with a bow and arrow. And I was like, you know that they have like missiles, dad. Like what, what are you doing? Bow and arrow, crazy. But the way that he trained was he set up an archery uh, range in our house. Yeah, for real, in our house. So he took, a, he took a target and he put it outside the back door. He would open the back door and then just beyond the back door was a grand piano. And then just behind that was our uh, dining room table. And just beyond that was our kitchen. Just beyond that was the entrance to our house. And he would stand outside the front door of our house and he would take his compound bow and he'd shoot it through the entrance through the kitchen, through the dining room, over the table, over the grand piano, through the door and into the target. Now, later he he and my mom realized that they had to have some sort of signal because she could just be walking through the house and that's that's dangerous. I don't know if you know about compound bows. They're not Nerf bows. It's a big deal. And this one's a pretty big deal. I can't imagine it being worse than this. I mean, for real. But I remember when I was growing up, because my dad, as an avid hunter, wanted his son to be a hunter, and it didn't really work. It didn't stick. But we did a lot of hunting together. I just never really enjoyed it. It wasn't my favorite. But I remember when I went to camp as a kid, we learned how to um, use weaponry like bows and arrows. And I was about six years old, and we we learned how to shoot a bow and arrow. And I, I remember there were so many rules that went with it. There were a lot of rules for our safety and there were a lot of rules for technique so that you could do the point, which is if you're shooting a bow and arrow, what is the point? You want to hit the target. Yeah, yeah. If you hit the target, you have accomplished your mission, right? But in order to hit the target, there are a lot of things that you need to do. There are a lot of, lots of training that you need to take and there are a lot of rules that you need to observe, especially when you have 10 six-year-olds who have never shot a bow and arrow before and you're you know, a, a college you know, student trying to like, 
like, I don't know, protect your safety with all of these kids with bows and arrows pointing them everywhere. And I remember, the first thing that you would do, the first command that the, the counselor would give us is strike a pose. And so, of course, every kid, when he says strikes a pose, they're all flexing. But what striking a pose is, it's taking the, the, the tip of your, your bow, putting on the tip of your shoe, and then holding the bow like this. Now, the, these were long bows, so they were as tall as we were as kids. But that's what you do. You would strike a pose. And then after you would strike a pose, he would give the command for you to knock an arrow. Now, I don't know how much you know about the parts of an arrow, but the, uh, but John does, but the, uh, the parts of the arrow, they're, they're, they're a tip back here. It's called the knock, and it has a little, a little indention that you put on the string, right? You knock an arrow. Now, this, this arrow is a little bit different. It's a little more advanced. The, uh, you, you actually do that on the front. But you would, you would strike a pose, then you would knock an arrow, and then you would aim, and when you aim, you pull the, the string back, holding on to the knock, and you gotta make sure that the, the feathers are just right, and you pull it back to your cheek. And then when you've aimed, the counselor would give the, 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 the command, fire, right? And then you'd fire. And I'm not gonna do it here because I don't wanna hurt anyone. This actually, this goes a lot farther and faster than I ever imagined when I got it from Walmart last night. Um, it's... <laughs> It, it, it's a big deal. And then after a while, after the counselor felt comfortable with all these six-year-olds shooting arrows at targets, he would then say, now fire at will. And that meant you could, you could do it at your own pace. You could shoot all these arrows at your own pace. But I had a, guy, a buddy named Will in my cabin, and that was, a, that was a very precarious command because for real, like kids start to point there, and you're like, no, 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 stop it. Oh, oh. Goodness. Now, if you, maybe you're familiar with weaponry as I am, I don't know. But if you are, do you need to utilize all of the techniques and observe all of the rules in order to hit the target? Is it possible that you could hit the target even if you had bad form? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, probably not, your, your percentage is going to be pretty low, but it's possible. But there are certain techniques that are absolutely necessary if you do not point the weapon at the target, you're not gonna hit the target. I don't care how many times you try, you're not gonna hit the target. You have to point it at the target. If you're using a bow and arrow, if you don't pull it back far enough, you're not gonna have enough power for your arrow to reach the target. Right, so there are certain things that you have to do in order to hit the target, in order to accomplish the goal. But there are some things that are just helpful. There are some things that are just beneficial. There are some things like training that over time make you into a good archer. And then if, say, you translate to a different weapon, maybe you're upgrading to a BB gun. There are some techniques when you upgrade to a BB gun that still stay consistent, right? You still need to aim at the target. You still need to continue to breathe. You still need to have your eyes open. You still need to, you know, aim. But there are certain things like pulling the string back that, that don't translate to shooting a gun. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I bought a bow and arrow at Walmart last night, I needed I needed to validate my purchase uh, as a grown adult. Uh, no, uh, because Paul, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Paul. Last week uh, we were in the the letter of First Timothy. We introduced this letter, uh, and if you're familiar with the the Bible, there are a number of different books in the Bible, and a lot of the books towards the end of the Bible are letters. 
They're letters that are written. And this letter, 1 Timothy, was written by one of the earliest church planting missionaries to this guy he had apprenticed under him for about 10 years. So he trained this guy for about 10 years. He traveled all over modern day Turkey, over modern day, uh, over Macedonia and Greece, traveled all around planting churches. They would disciple people, they would raise up leaders, and then they would go on to a new city and they would plant another church. And so Timothy had traveled with Paul for years doing this, leading and learning and listening. And then Paul, at some point in time, went with Timothy to a, Timothy to a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a very important city at that time, but the church of Ephesus became unbelievably influential. I don't know when you think about a church that's influential globally. I don't know what comes to your mind. Maybe it's Hillsong Church. Uh, Maybe you think of Life Church that has a bunch of different video campuses all over uh, the world. But there are a number of influential churches in our day and age. Ephesus would have been that church. Whatever you think of as the most influential church in your mind, that was the church of Ephesus because it was the place where churches from all over got their start. And they were training up missionaries and sending them out all over modern day Turkey, all over the world to plant churches. It was a very important church. And so Paul and Timothy, they're at Ephesus and then they, they leave Ephesus. Uh, you know, Paul comes back. He talks to the elders. Paul gets put in prison. Later on, we, we believe he gets freed from prison and then goes with Timothy to Ephesus. And at this visit to Ephesus, they find out that just as Paul had thought early on, that there were some false teachers that had arisen in that church, right? Some people who were twisting the gospel, who were twisting the truth and they were teaching these things that were not in line with the way of Jesus and they had really corrupted that community of people. And so Paul said to Timothy, I'm gonna leave you here in Ephesus to deal with this because I gotta go. I gotta do all these other things. He planted a number of other churches. He had a ton of responsibilities that he was uh, in charge of. So he left Timothy, who he'd been training for 10 years, to be there in Ephesus and take care of the issue of the false teachers and all of the stuff that had transpired because of their teaching. A little bit later, we don't know how long later, Paul writes a letter. We believe that it's from prison and he writes to Timothy and here's what he says to Timothy. And if you guys have, you know, the Bible or your, your journal of Timothy or whatever, you can turn there. First Timothy, go ahead and turn to chapter three. Because chapter three is where Paul writes out really clearly why he's writing this letter at this time. And he says this. Uh, he says, I hope, in, in verse 14, First Timothy three, verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing this for this purpose. I wanna come to you and I want to be with you and help you with all of the things that are going on. I want to help you in, uh, you know, you're striving to help, uh, you know, go against these false teachers and what they're teaching. But if I delay, I want you to know how we, how the people of God should behave in the church. And he sets the bar really high for what the church is. First thing is he calls the church the household of God. Now, if you were a Jewish person around that day and age, you would have thought the temple, the temple in Jerusalem on Mount, um, on Mount Moriah. 
where all of the Jewish people from all over the world come to worship God, this place of awe and reverence where people are just glorifying the one God of the universe. Or maybe if you had a pagan background, maybe you're thinking about about the temple of Zeus or uh, the temple of Aphrodite or or whomever uh, the God was that you worshiped uh, in your old life. So Paul calls the church, which this would be us, the household of God. This is God's house. Not this building, but this group of people is God's house. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, think about your house, your home, the home that you grew up in, um, you know, the, the place where you go, that's kind of your sanctuary, your place of rest, the place where, you know, your will is done, right? Where, where everyone loads the dishwasher the way that it's supposed to be loaded your way, right? You know, like, like just think about your house and just think that we are God's house. This is what Paul says to Timothy. This is a big deal. What I'm writing matters because I'm writing to talk to you how we followers of Jesus behave in God's house. But then he says, it's not just the household of God. He says, it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, buttress, I had to look up. I'll be completely honest. Did not know what buttress was. I don't, that's not something I use in my normal day language. Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's just not a word that we use. But buttress is, it's like a foundation, a secure foundation for something. And so Paul says the church is not only the household of God, but it's a pillar, which you built houses on pillars, like a secure pillar or a foundation for the truth. This is a place where the truth is founded and secure and doesn't move, which in light that there are false teachers in their midst, this is a very big deal. And so this is why Paul is writing. And what we see is Paul is a very unique thing in the way that he lays out all of these different rules and regulations and commands that he begins to uh, write throughout the rest of this letter. But he starts at an important spot. So turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul lays out something that is foundational. He He says this, he says the aim in verse five, first Timothy chapter one, verse five, he says the aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge. Now the, the Greek word aim here is telos. And what telos means is the created or designed end for something. The thing for which something was created. And so Paul says the telos, the thing for which the church was created, the thing for which we followers of Jesus were created, the aim of our charge is love. This is the reason that we were formed together as a body of believers for love. That issues from pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now this is a big deal. This is a big deal when Paul continues to get into all these different commands and all these different instructions and how to deal with what the false teachers were doing, he says, I want to rewind and remind you of what's the foundational reality that we're doing. Jesus does this in, in Matthew. One time Jesus is, he has a conversation with a guy who's called a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was, you know, a religious all-star. You know, whoever you think, you know, knows a lot about the Bible. You you know, those, those are the Pharisees in the people's mind. They knew the Bible backwards and forward. And they loved the laws. 
They were passionate about everybody being obedient to the laws. Who here likes rule? Who's a rule follower here? You love rules. Okay, Pharisees, that's it. Man, you, they were rule followers. In fact, they followed rules so faithfully that they developed other rules to make sure that there's no way you could disobey or transgress any of the rules in the Bible. They're about, in the Torah, they're about 613 commandments in the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees added 1,500 other rules and regulations on top of those just to make sure. And the way it worked was if, if, if a law, let's say there was a law in the Bible that said, don't cross this line, then the Pharisees would add other laws that would say, well, don't cross this line. Because if you don't cross this line, then there's no way you're going to cross that line. So they loved rules. They loved laws. And they loved being obedient to the laws. And a Pharisee, this expert in the law, asked Jesus a question. Matthew 22, verse 35. He says this. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So how many commandments is this guy asking for? One, he's asking for the great or the greatest commandment. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I don't know how many of you love to voluntarily just enter into conflict. Anybody here just, just love conflict? Some of us do, and that's okay. That's not, not a bad thing. But most of us try and steer clear of conflict that we don't have to be involved in. Now, Jesus is entering into a hotly debated topic, which is the second greatest commandment. I know that we have other things that we argue about uh, in our day and age, but in, in his day and age, what they argued about was how to order the commandments. And people disagreed vehemently on which was the second greatest commandment. And so Jesus wasn't asked about the second greatest commandment. He was just asked about the first, but he voluntarily steps into this argument, to this debate, because he believes that the first two are connected. Jesus said the second is like it. The second is connected to it. That it's not just that we love God, but that we also love people. In fact, we can't fully love God if we don't love people. And we can't truly love people if we don't love God. That's what Jesus is saying. That loving God and loving people is the foundational reality. It is, if you will, the target that we are aiming for or the telos, the end goal for which we were created. Paul says it like this as he's writing to a church in 1 Corinthians. Church of Corinth, he says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, which who here knows multiple languages? Come on, be honest. Who knows multiple? Whoa, I'm so impressed. That is incredible. How, how does it feel when you go somewhere that doesn't speak English, but they speak the other language that you speak and you can just converse with them? You feel pretty cool, don't you? I mean, it's, it's better than just going in with English and just talking louder. Where is the bathroom? Where, you know, you, that's what we do. I don't know why we do that, but we do that. But how great is it when you can actually speak to someone in their native language and, and you see their, their eyes light up because you have this connection with them. Like, so being able to speak multiple languages, that's a good thing, right? And being able to speak in the tongues of angels, that's a pretty cool thing. So Paul says, if I could do these two impressive things, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Anyone have a brother or sister who um, grew up playing the drums? 
If you do, you know what a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal is, right? When they're, when someone is learning to play the drums, like just hitting that thing over and over and over again, and you just want to, in the love of God, strangle them. You know what I'm talking about? Like just, oh, come on. Woo. Paul says, yeah, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on, he says this, and if I have prophetic powers, are prophetic powers a good thing? Yes. And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, is having all knowledge a good thing? Yes. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, is that a good thing? Yes. He says, if I have these, but if I have not love, I am nothing. He said, if I give away all of I ha- all that I have, is generosity a good thing? Yes. And I delivered up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, if we don't get the end goal for which we were created, we miss the point. We can do all these incredible things, all of these impressive things. We can know all the languages of humans and angels. We can have prophetic powers. We can understand every mystery. We can have all faith so much so that we can move mountains. We can be so generous that we would give away everything that we have. But if we don't have love, We gain nothing. We are nothing. This was the end for which we were created. And if we miss that point, we miss everything. Jesus goes so far to say, this is how people will know you are his followers, by your love for one another. Not by your brilliance, not by your wisdom, not by your impressive gifts and talents, but by your love for one another. Now, when we start talking about love in our culture, a lot of times that word just doesn't mean a lot because we use it to mean basically anything, right? We just use that word for all kinds of different things. So what I want to talk about is what is Paul talking about? What is Jesus talking about? When they use this word love, what do they mean by this word love? Well, it's the Greek word agape. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard this word agape. And I want to call this word Biblical divine love. And Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. Just after he he gave those things that we read, he says this, he says agape or love is patient. Oh, isn't patience so hard? Because anytime it's not hard, it's not patience anymore. It's something different than that. Who here struggles to be patient? Yeah, me too. Love is patient. Agape is patient. And then he says, love is kind. Oh, you know, you know, I find that kindness is easy until I have to be patient and then it's not easy anymore, right? You, everybody, everybody point at someone who it's hard to be kind to. Just kidding, don't do that, don't do that. Whoa, 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 people stop that. Wow. Agape, the love of God, this divine love that we are created for is patient. It's kind. Uh, It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This is basically my entire life. I just insist on my own way, right? It's about what I want and how I want it. Mostly because I'm right all the time, right? I mean, because if I'm right, then we should do it my way, right? right? Except love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't have this caveat unless you're right, unless your way is right. It just says it doesn't insist on its own way. It says it's not irritable or resentful. Uh Uh-oh. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul sets the bar really high. This thing for which each and every single one of us was created for, this thing which the church was gathered for, it's a high bar. It's patient, it's kind, it's not irritable or or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Agape, the love of Jesus, divine love is a very high bar. And this is what we were created for. This is the aim of our charge. And then Jesus steps it up a notch. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, he's talking to his disciples and he says this, this is my commandment that you love one another. And you think about that table that Jesus was sitting around when he was talking to his disciples and who was sitting there. I mean, if you think about people who are hard or difficult to love for you, that was the disciples. I mean, you've got two people on either end of the spectrum. Do you remember that one time a long time ago when our country was polarized? Remember back then? Think about, think about the most left-leaning person and the most right-leaning person you can imagine. And imagine them sitting around a dinner table and Jesus telling them to love one another. That would be difficult. I mean, think about, I don't know, maybe Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump at the same table and Jesus saying, love one another. And he doesn't stop there. He said, love one another as I have loved you. It's not just this, don't just say you love one another. Don't just get along. Don't just treat each other kindly. Like agape love one another because that's how I have loved you. And then he gives an example. He says, greater love is no one than this and that someone lay down his life for his friends. The way that I would define biblical love, divine love, agape love, the love of Jesus is to say that love is self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. It's self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. Like this is the aim of our charge. This is the end for which we were created. So I want us to say it together. Self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. Say it again. Self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. This is what we were created for. This is the end goal that God had in mind when he created us, that we would be people who are continually self-sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of the other. This is how we demonstrate that we are followers of Jesus, that we walk in his footsteps of agape, divine, biblical love. And this is the way it was from the beginning. If we rewind back to the Garden of Eden, God plants this this garden. He puts these two people in the garden and he only gives them two commands. And it's a choice between two trees. You've got the tree of life and then you've got the tree of knowledge. And he says, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Instead, eat from the tree of life. So what Adam and Eve had to do is they had to bypass the tree of knowledge in order to eat of life. And you see what God is doing. It's really incredible what he's doing here. Now, is knowledge a good thing? Yeah, knowledge is a good thing. In fact, knowledge is a necessary thing, right? We need to know things in order to know how to live, in order to know how to act and interact with God and with people. Right? We need to know what to eat and what not to eat, to know how to work and how, like, like, like think about Adam and Eve. I mean, they were like children, right? They didn't know stuff. And so they needed to know things. 
So bypassing the tree of knowledge required a great deal of trust in God. Right? I mean, you could imagine. I don't know anything and I'm not gonna survive if I don't know things and I want life, but if I want life, I have to bypass knowledge. It means I have to trust that you are gonna give me what I need when I need it. You're gonna tell me what I need to know when I need to know it. That I can trust in you, that you are good, that you love me and you will give me good things. And you see Adam and Eve made a choice, a choice that we continue to make over and over again. He's like, no, I want knowledge. I don't trust you. I don't trust that you're good. I want knowledge. I want to know for myself. But God wanted to create an environment of trust because trust in a relationship facilitates intimacy. It facilitates intimacy and over time produces maturity. And that's what God wanted for his people. But we want information, don't we? We want more information. But you see throughout the scriptures that this doesn't work. If you'll ever sit down and you, you, you go through the book of Exodus and Leviticus, I don't know if, if anyone's ever read that in one setting. If you have, that's amazing because those books are tough to get through. But you see this pattern emerge and it's this meta theme throughout the scriptures. God at Mount Sinai gives them 10 commandments. Right? 10 isn't a lot. Ten's just a few commandments. And what they do right after they get the 10 commandments is they rebel against God. And so God gives them some more commandments and then they rebel against God. So God gives them more commandments and then they rebel against God and God gives them more commandments and then they rebel against God. God gives them more commandments and they rebel against God. And so what you see, this pattern, is you see that more commandments don't produce what God wants. They don't produce intimacy and maturity, right? We can't perfectly obey the law. It's beyond our capacity in and of ourselves and it actually hinders intimacy with God. I, some of you are parents, but most of you have been parented. The way that parenting works a lot of times is at first, early on when you have a kid, there are a lot of rules that you give them. I remember my sister, uh, when she was raising her oldest son, Jack, she was utilizing the parenting technique that I call, that's a stop. And what she would do is she would take Jack to something that was off limits, something that was dangerous or something that he shouldn't get into. And she would say, point at it and say, that's a stop. Which I guess means don't, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't touch that, right? And I remember when we went to my grandmother's house uh, for the first time, she brought him there and she went around the living room. And I promise you, she pointed at everything in the room and said, that's a stop. 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 And I was like, What's this kid gonna do? Just like stand in a circle and just like look around? Like, I don't, I don't know. But as a kid, the world is dangerous. And so it's good of parents to give a lot of rules. But as a kid grows up, parents remove rules, right? Because they don't want someone who is dependent upon rules. They want someone who as they get older begins to embody their heart and their mindset and their worldview without the rules. Right? They want a mature adult. And God wants the same thing for us. He wants us to be mature. Because more rules don't work anyway. More rules don't produce maturity. More rules, they can also insulate us from having to have intimacy. Because when you have all of the rules, when you have all the information, you don't need to go to God. Right? 
If, if I had everything that I needed for every moment of my life, like in a book, I would never need to say, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to love this person in this moment. I don't know how to make this decision. What do I do? And so God in his kindness doesn't give us all the information so that we have to continue to come to him, run to him, develop a deeply personal, intimate connection with him. The aim of our charge, the telos, the end goal for which we are created is love. But it's not just this epic high bar agape love, but it's love, Paul says, that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And what we see in scripture, and I, I'm guessing what you have seen in your own life is that that's a problem. See, it's not just that we have to act loving. It's that God wants us to become loving. It's not just that we're called to act patient. We are to become patient. It's not just we're to act and speak kindly. It's to to become people who are kind. And we need a heart transplant for that. You see this in the book of Jeremiah. You see this in the book of Ezekiel. Jesus, uh, God speaking through these prophets said, I'm going to give a new commandment to you, a new covenant with you. And in this new covenant, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to write love of God and love of people on your heart. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. See, in and of ourselves, apart from Jesus, we can't do this. But God gives us this gift of a new heart. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter five, verse five. Paul says this, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We believe that every follower of Jesus gets God's spirit, that God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul says. All of us who are followers of Jesus have had God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, we not only need a new heart, we not only need God to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, we not only need God to write love of God and love of people on our heart, but we need God to abide with us and walk us into maturity, train us into becoming people who are actually patient and actually kind and actually loving, actually joyful. We need God to train us and that's God's spirit. He walks with us, training us, developing us, or what we might call sanctifying us to look more like Jesus. Jesus says he's the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one who leads us into all truth. He's the one who will give us what we need to say when we need to say it. And the way that I think about it is this. I used to do a lot of traveling uh, a number of years ago. And when I first started doing a lot of traveling, it was uh, pre-GPS, Uh, It was in the day of the big old map. And I I don't know how many of you even know or even seen one of these, but there used to be, you could get it at at, at any gas station, this giant map that was probably this by this giant map. And it had all the 50 states in it and all of the major highways and roads in each of the 50 states right there. And then it would have some of the cities blown up. And I remember driving different places, not knowing where I was going. I'd pull out my map and I'd have it open on my steering wheel. And I think back about it. I think, man, that was worse than texting and driving. Why were there no laws against driving with a map? I don't know, but there should have been. I mean, it was super dangerous. We didn't know where we were going. And we had to use a map. 
And I remember when someone first told me about MapQuest. You guys remember MapQuest? MapQuest was beautiful because you could go to your computer and you could enter in the address where you were going and you could enter in the address where you were and then it would print out all of the step-by-step directions on how to get where you were going. It would tell you what road you were on, how long you were gonna be on that road, how many different miles. It would tell you where you needed to turn next and how far it was. And it had all of the details. It had the speed limits on the different roads that you were gonna be traveling on. It was brilliant. I loved it. See, this is the way that we want to work with God is we want God from the beginning to tell us every direction that we need to know at the beginning before we have to go there. It's like God saying, hey, we're going to take a a journey to Los Angeles. And you're like, okay, I need to have MapQuest print out a 45-page booklet on every single direction and every turn I'm going to have to make on my way there. But that's not the way that God interacts with us. It's more like this. It's more like God says, hey, I want you to head to the the West Coast. You're like, where in the West Coast? He's like, yeah, just, just start going that way. Well, how do I know if I'm going the right direction? Just make sure the sun is rising behind you and setting in front of you and you're going to be good to go. And you're like, what? There's so much more I need to know. He says, okay. He goes, I'm going to give you the journals of a number of people who have gone from the East Coast to the West Coast. A number of people that have gone this way before you. And they've written some things down, things that are very helpful, things that you want to avoid and ways that you want to go, times that you want to travel and times that you don't want to travel. Okay, that seems a little bit more helpful. And he says, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give you this watch. And I have, I have a watch that's connected to my phone. And when I use my GPS on my phone, my watch vibrates every time I need to pay attention to the GPS, right? When it turns coming up, it vibrates. So I know, oh, pay attention, pay attention. God says, I'm gonna give you a watch and it's gonna vibrate every time you need to pay attention. And then he says, and you're not gonna be alone. You're gonna be with a caravan of other people driving to the West Coast, doing the same thing, reading those same journals, having that same vibrating watch to let you know when you need to pay attention. See, God called us into a community of believers. And he says, the aim of our charge, what we're doing is we're headed towards love. And we've got the scriptures, great men and women who have gone before us, who have lived out faithfully love of God and love of people, imperfectly, but faithfully love of God and love of people. And then we've got the Holy Spirit inside of us who tells us to pay attention when we need to pay attention. And we do this together as a group of people. There are so many people who have gone before us and we're doing it together. But that's kind of scary because it requires a lot of trust. It requires that we develop a deeply personal, intimate relationship with God It requires us to move into maturity. Now, the church of Ephesus, this community that Paul is writing to through Timothy, it's a cautionary tale. Because about 25, 30 years later, Jesus himself writes a letter to this church through John. And he says this in Revelation Chapter two, verse one, Jesus writes this. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So the first thing that Jesus says to this church is, All of those things that Paul wrote in this letter about the false teachers, you got it right, right? 
He says, you found out the false teachers and, and you don't bear with them. You don't bear with those who are evil, those who are false. The, the, the issue of false teachers, you've taken care of that. Way to go. But then he gives them this indictment. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's like they had all of the techniques down just right. They had all of the techniques down, but they missed the target. They forgot that the point was not all the little details. The point, the aim, the telos, the end for which they were created and gathered together as a body was agape, divine, self-sacrificially giving themselves for the good of one another. See, we can get the details right and we can miss the point. And my hope and my heart for us as a community of Jesus followers is that if, if we get anything right, it would be that. It would be the foundational reality for which God created each and every single one of us, that we would be a group of people who demonstrates the love that Jesus demonstrated for us, self-sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of the other. Jesus said, you abandoned the love that you had at first. And what I love about God, he just, he just continually blows my mind, is what we find out about our first love is it's love that God gave us as a gift. That the first love is that love that God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's that love that we have because Jesus sacrificed himself on our behalf, that he died on the cross so that we could be invited into the family of God. He was the one who took on sin so that we could be washed white as snow. That's the love that we have at first, the love that God gave us as a gift, the epic love that he had for sinners, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, we live out in love because it's already been given to us. We live out in love as a response to God's incredible love that he demonstrated for us so fully on the cross. It's a response of gratitude, not a trying to earn God's favor. And I love that about the gospel. Man, we get to be together as God's house and worship him and respond overflowing in our hearts and love towards him and love towards one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would be with us as we continue to study this book, as we continue to look at all of the different beautiful things that you wrote through the hand of Paul. I pray that you give us wisdom to understand the things that are difficult to understand. I pray that you give us insight to see how uh, love, how loving all of the things that you wrote are. And I pray that you'd show us how to translate those into our context, into our day and age. God, but most of all, just thank you. Thank you for loving us with that epic agape love, for giving yourself for us, for giving everything, for not sparing anything, not even your son. Jesus, thank you for giving your life. Thank you for giving us your spirit and pouring out that divine agape love into our hearts and giving us the opportunity to be conduits of that love. Help us. We cannot do it on our own. 
And so we ask these things in the most beautiful name ever uttered, Jesus. Amen.